Well, there's so much great energy in the room. I don't want to kill it, but I do want to redirect it. And uh, the reason is, is that these last few weeks have been real weeks of loss for us here at The Effect. Uh, two, three weeks ago, we lost two people. Um, Cheryl Yanni, Joe's wife, and uh, Sean's mother. Sean, I guess Sean's not here today. And uh, we lost Zach Weinberg. This week, we lost Ann Henry, or Ann Pass, you might know her. And, um, and then on Friday, we lost Shirley Boone. And some of you uh, may know about that. You may have seen it. You know, it's, uh, it's been sort of a surreal experience for me to uh, be watching all of the news feed, you know, CNN, USA Today, People Magazine, Fox News, covering the story of, of Shirley's death as a, you know, national, global event. And I just know her as my spiritual mom. And uh, for those of you who are new here and, and have been here shorter than two years, uh, Pat and Shirley Boone found us. And, and the way that they found us was... was just one of those circuitous kind of, of events that you can't possibly engineer. Um, friends of the family had come through our treatment program, and through that we got to know Lindy Boone, a Michaelis, who lives here in Cota de Casa. And she is Pat and Shirley's, one of Pat and Shirley's four daughters. And uh, we had, she, I met her at one point, and she had just gotten a book out. I had a book out. We started talking about our books. She wanted a copy of mine. That intrigued her. She started coming on Sunday morning with her whole family. And then at one point, we had her speak uh, on a Sunday because she, her family had been through a crazy time with a traumatic brain injury to her oldest son. And uh, her mom and dad came to support her to that. And then we connected, and they fell in love with the effect. And for what, four years, they were fixtures here. Um, they were here two to three times a week, all the way from Beverly Hills was where they lived. And they came down here to be with us, and they found a home and a connection. But for me personally, um, my father died in uh, 2000, and my mother died just at the beginning of 2013. And I think I met Shirley maybe two months after my mother's death. And... Uh, we clicked on a level that I can't explain, the two of us. What it started was five years of daily communication. And we were texting, we were phone calling each other. I had a drive to Bakersfield at one point, and she got on the phone with me. We stayed on the phone the entire way to Bakersfield. And through me getting lost in downtown Pasadena, having get off the freeway and going, I didn't know where I was, and she's still talking. You know, at some points I wasn't listening anymore. I was trying to figure out where I was. But it was an amazing connection. You know, I've heard of children who have this daily contact with their mothers or with their fathers, and I never understood that. It's not that I had bad parents. We just didn't click that way. I'm adopted, and they were adopted parents. It just seems like we were worlds apart in terms of the way we looked at things and and what was important to us. And so we didn't have that kind of connection. And so it was interesting to me that right was, as my adoptive mother died, here's Shirley, and we just had this, this amazing connection. She called me her spiritual son. I think they always wanted a boy, and they never got one. So uh, they had lots of sons-in-law, but I became sort of an honorary um, son. And uh, Pat and Shirley drew Marion and I in. Um, we got to go to things we never would go to otherwise, found ourselves standing outside the Beverly Hills Hotel with all these celebrities going through, and we're looking at each other, what are we doing here? This is just weird. But more important than any of that was that they gave us a window 
into themselves and their family. And Pat and Shirley Boone are exactly what they look like in terms of their, their reputation and the way that they're portrayed in the media. They are just down-home, genuine, lovely people. And uh, we have had the privilege of knowing them. And those of you who knew them as they were here, always showing up with their dog Shadow, which was the beginning of our dog-friendly environment here. <clears throat> but they gave us so much. They, they supported us financially, they supported us spiritually, and they supported us personally. And uh, I knew that this was coming. Um, the beginning of 2017, Shirley started to get sick. Um, I think it was eventually congestive heart failure, vasculitis, but in 2017, she started to get sick, and that was the end of her being able to travel. She was housebound pretty much for the last two years of her life. But through 2017, we were still every day talking, and and Marion and I would drive to Beverly Hills and pick up dinner and go have dinner with Pat and Shirley, and it was a real vibrant relationship. But in 2018, it got harder and harder to get a hold of her. Um, The conversations that we did have got shorter and shorter. Her texts became non-existent. And for the last six months, she hasn't been able to communicate at all. And for the last few months, all my communication has come through Pat. She was at um, Cedar sinais Hospital for about two months before they brought her home on hospice. And uh, in October, uh, I got to go uh, to the hospital and visit her. I was trying to be sensitive to the family and her condition. Um, but I told you this story before that I was able to show up when nobody else was there. Didn't plan it that way. It was just the two of us. And she was lucid and she was able to talk. And we had a really great last conversation. And I was able to tell her everything I wanted to say to her in terms of what she's meant to me and the place that she had in my life. I don't know how much sometimes that she was comprehending. She was repeating herself. But I got right into her face and I told her these things, you know, just how much I love her. And then a month ago, Marion and I um, drove to, to Beverly Hills to their home and, and brought her Mexican food because they love Mexican food. And by that time, um, she wasn't real coherent. She wasn't really able to hold a conversation as much. But she saw us. She recognized us. And the most affirming thing that she did was she looked at Marion and said, I like your hair. It's just like mine. <laughs> she had had a new cut, you know. And that was like, great, great. She knows we're here. Um, it's, it's Whenever a friend dies, there, there's always that period. I guess it's denial. That period where it doesn't feel real. You know, the finality of not ever being able to see her again hasn't quite set in. And since I hadn't seen her very much over the last few months, you know, it's not going to feel that much different for a while. But I know that's all coming. Um, Pat sent me a a text. I've been trying to stay present to Pat because 65 years of marriage between these two. They met as 16-year-olds in high school. And so it's it's going to be just a life-changing transition for Pat. But... uh, Friday morning, actually it was Friday afternoon, I have it tagged right here, 145, I get a text from Pat, and he says, quick bulletin, this is so Pat, change of address, dear Shirley Boone doesn't dwell in Beverly Hills now, she's just been warmly welcomed into a beautiful new mansion in heaven, prepared specifically for her and her husband by Jesus himself, who said that where I am, you may be also. Rejoice for her. She's begun her eternal life 
She loves you too, as I do, Pat. And that's how I found out. And then a little while later, or the next day or whatever it was, he sent me um, the uh, link to the People article that had just come out. And I wanted to read that to you. It's, it's, it's really well done. Um, and they, they quote Pat, so they obviously interviewed him. But the headline is, Pat Boone's wife of 65 years surely dies. Quote, I parted with my better half for a little while. End quote. Shirley Boone, the wife of legendary 1950s singer Pat Boone, has died. She was 84. Shirley passed away peacefully on Friday morning at the pair's home in Beverly Hills after suffering complications from vasculitis, which she had contracted less than a year ago. In her final moments, Shirley was surrounded by her husband of 65 years and the couple's four daughters, Cherry, Lindy, Debbie, and Lori, all of whom were by her bedside singing hymns to her as she passed. Following her death, Pat, 84, told people that he intended to meet his longtime love again someday because, as he put it, she just changed addresses. We lived a wonderful, blessed life together for 65 years. I parted with my better half for a little while. But we don't die. We just move on to another place. And today was moving day. Pat said of his high school sweetheart, she's changed her address and all and moved to a different mansion that I expect to join her in one day. I'm very confident of that. It took the sting out of what happened today because we know we're going to be together again and have a whole new beginning. Pat and Shirley began their love story at 16 years old. We were very much in love, Pat revealed. It wasn't until they were 19 when Shirley's family planned to move away that Pat realized it was time to ask her father, country singing legend Red Foley, for permission to marry Shirley. He tearfully asked me one thing, Pat said, will you take care of my girl? And I said I would. And the tears rolled into his coffee because he knew he was moving and planned to take her with him, but he was willing to leave her with me. In November 1953, the pair eloped and then settled in Teaneck, New Jersey, where they welcomed their four daughters in five years. Four daughters in five years. Together they supported each other as their lives and careers were established. Pat working his way through rigorous Columbia University, he graduated cum laude, and battling with Elvis for the hearts of America's teenagers at the same time. While Shirley focused on raising their four girls, they eventually moved to Beverly Hills together, where they resided for more than 50 years, watching their four children, 16 grandchildren, and 10 great-grandchildren grow up. The thing that would most fulfill her was to be a good wife and mother and grandmother and to create happy homes, Pat said of his wife, noting that the pair would often take second or third honeymoons together on ocean voyages. In addition to uh, being by her sweetheart's side for more than half a century, Shirley was also a best-selling author, recording artist, television hostess, and humanitarian. Brandon, did you start the slideshow? Go ahead and start the slideshow. I meant to cue you ages ago. Shirley was well-known for starting a billion-dollar Christian ministry. The couple's Christian faith was also a contributing key factor in what drove their marriage to last for so long. We didn't have the perfect marriage, but it helps to marry a magnificent woman, Pat tells people. You make your commitments to God and to each other, and in troubled times, you hang on to the commitment to God and to your kids. You see the problems through, and you find that you're stronger because of it. Part of her passions were also focused on giving back to others, which she first did through an organization she created called Save the Refugee. 
Shirley, along with ministers and other humane organizations, raised over a million dollars in a week's time, sending food and medicines over to Cambodia to assist with the hunger crisis. Their organization eventually morphed into Mercy Corps, now one of the most prominent worldwide hunger relief organizations. Mercy Corps continues to grow, and all of this started from her tears and her conviction that we could do something, Pat said. She was always ready to interrupt what she was doing and help somebody else. And that desire to give back was one of the things Pat says he will remember most about his wife. She had an honest, deep, earnest love for people and her desire to help people as activists, he said. She was so easy to love because she loved so easily and so naturally. And then in a text exchange with his daughter, Cherry, she filled in some of the gaps, and I got her permission to be able to read these to you. Just just listen and let, let it paint the picture. First she says, We love you and appreciate you guys. And this is how I described her transition to my family and friends. My incredible mom passed sweetly, softly, gently, as we were singing hymns in harmony for about an hour. She made her exit at about 12.25 p.m. I believe she held on until I could get here. Terry lives in Seattle. Then we sang a cappella for quite a while. We stopped to talk for a few minutes, and that was when she left us. She had heard her family concert, and when there was no encore coming, she left her tired, sick, and frail body and was free. Yes, our whole nuclear family was there. I had originally been scheduled to come this evening, but the hospice nurses were indicated I needed to get here sooner. So I took a 6 a.m. flight from Seattle, arrived at the house at about 9.45, and we visited and had coffee and then decided to start singing. We stood around her bed, the five of us, each of us struggling from time to time to keep it together. And we sang hymns from the old hymnal we used when we attended the Church of Christ, and the old lyrics and harmonies came back to us as we sang. We serenaded her for about an hour, stopped when we ran out of some of the familiar ones uh, to chat, And that was when she surrendered her body and liberated her spirit. A friend of mine said, she is sure my mom is now among a choir of heavenly angels. And I told her I agreed. We were just the opening act. (laughs) It's a beautiful picture of a family coming together, you know, doing what they had always done together, right? For all those years, for half a century, and now they're doing it together around her bed. Marion and I are so grateful that we got this time, these, these last five years, to be as much a part of the family as they allowed us to be and to just get to know them. And I know all of you who knew Pat and Shirley and got to enjoy them on Sunday mornings feel the same way. And the whole time, as Shirley got sicker, everybody was praying. They were both praying. I talked to Shirley and she told me she was praying, you know, for a turnaround. She was praying to stop feeling so tired. Pat was praying. Their family and friends were praying. They put it out there. So worldwide, people were praying that something would happen, something would change, right? And so if we look at Pat right now, the fact that his prayers weren't answered in the way that he had hoped that they would be answered. Look at what he was able to accomplish. Look at the grace. Look at the cheerful trust that he is able to exude. Look at the stalwart nature of his faith. 
even in the face of the death of his wife of 65 years, even in the face of the uncertainty that he's got to be feeling, the way that he has reacted to this, that the outcomes that he was praying for, that everyone was praying for, weren't received in this way. But still, look what he's been able to do. Look at the example that he's been able to set, the inspiration that he's given to me, the strength that he's given to me, and I'm sure to his family and many others. Now, of course, he's got to be hurting more than he's letting on, right? Um, And grief has a way of having a delay factor. Right now, all the, 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 uh, the daughters are around, the family's around. That buoys you up for a while. And those of you who have gone through this, you, and you know when everybody leaves and you go back to what passes for normal is when things will set in. And he could be in for some rough times, of course. That's, that's human nature. It's part of our frailty as humans. But right now, look what he's doing. How did he do that? How did he pray in such a way to be okay with any outcome? And maybe okay is too strong a word, but to still have peace? To still feel that God is right there for him in the midst of all of this? How did he do that? I have a friend who was diagnosed with cancer almost exactly one year ago. She went through chemo. And with all the pain and all the side effects and everything that chemo entails, and the cancer went into remission. And it was a big celebration. It was great, right? And early this week, I got an email from her, and I want to read a little bit of it. She says, I'm a bit anxious right now. I had my PET scan for cancer on Monday, and my doc, who I see in a couple of days, called and left a message saying he wanted to discuss results, but he didn't want to wait until the appointment. Waiting for his call back anticipating the possibility that the cancer is back, just wanting to go to an oceanfront hotel to listen to waves somewhere because the waves soothe me. If OC wasn't so far, I'd head out to the Ragged Inn by you guys. Ugh. Right now I'm having a coffee and Kahlua day in efforts to (laughs) self-soothe. We'll let you know how it lands. Strange that it'll be a year, January 10th, when I was first diagnosed. And she signs it, breathing. I love that, breathing. The next day, she writes, they found a nodule on the left upper lung as well as swollen lymph nodes. Biopsies are next. Trying to stay out of victim, quote-unquote, and the dark hole that is why me, which actually is quite soothing, but I'm very sad. Not much to say, my friend. We'll keep you posted. And then just a couple hours later, she wrote again, and she said, and so, (laughs) as a contemplative, How then shall we pray? What do you say? I love the way she put this. How then shall we pray? She's echoing Luke 3. And I don't know if she did this on purpose, if she did it consciously, but where the crowds are asking John the Baptist, what then must we do? In the face of everything that he's preaching, what then must we do? And he tells them, how then shall we pray? has that same kind of ring, that, that same kind of, of desperation. We want to know, you know. In the midst of the fear, in the midst of the longing for an outcome, in the midst of this impending death, you know, how do we pray in such a way that we can keep ourselves intact with any outcome and whatever happens? This is the question. What should we know? What should we believe about prayer? What do we need to unlearn? 
about prayer in order to be able to pray like Pat. Pat is showing us that it's possible, at least as far as we can know. But what does Jesus show us? What does Jesus teach us about prayer? That's where we got to go if we really want to know. Now, I see, as I look at Jesus in the Gospels with re, with re, in regard to prayer, I see three main principles, three attributes to prayer that we've got to take a look at if we're going to understand how this works so that we can deal with life as life is presented to us without losing our connection, without going into bitterness. So let's read. You can take a look at your... Uh, your inserts there, or you can take a look at the screens. Matthew 6, starting at verse 5. Jesus is saying, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard by their many words. So don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, so here's the first principle. The inner room and wordless prayer. We would call it silence and solitude, I suppose, right? Stillness. It's a nonverbal, and not exclusively nonverbal, but it's a, a primarily nonverbal form of communication, a non-rational form of communication. If we're not putting it into words, it's not going into that space. It's non-talking, non-thinking, and non-asking type of prayer. We're not asking for the things that God already knows about. We're going into a different kind of repose. It's a prayer of just being. Just being present, just being with God, aware of God's spirit. Now, this inner room that Jesus talks about can be taken literally, and that's why he uses it, because the people would have understood literally what he meant. First century Judean homes had flat roofs, and the roof was always used as part of the living space. So there were stairs that usually went up the outside, and then you could access the roof. But many of the homes also had chambers or rooms that were built along the edges of the roof or in the corners of the roof. When Jesus talks or when the scriptures talk about the upper room, these are the upper rooms they're talking about. Sometimes over the porch or the entryway of the house, there would be a room that was built the same size of the porch that would go up a second story and it was accessed from the inside. All of these rooms were rooms for quiet retirement. They were private rooms. No one was allowed It was from the outside. This is for the family's use only. And so when Jesus uses that inner room, they know exactly what he's talking about. You go into the recesses of your house. You go into the upper portion of your house. And you retire into that place that nobody sees. And there you pray to the Father who lives also in the secret unseen places. You're matching him matching his abode, if you will, by moving into the unseen as well. And if you don't have a secret place, I mean, Jesus was itinerant. He wasn't necessarily in homes. Where was he supposed to find a secret place? Where are you supposed to find a secret place? Jesus shows us that too. Often and over and over again in the Gospels, we see Jesus getting up long before dawn when it's still dark and moving out into a grove, moving out into the mountain, going out into a garden, going someplace 
when the crowds haven't formed yet, when the bustle of life hasn't hit yet, and finding that place of silence and solitude. But figuratively, it even goes deeper. Because the inner room is talking about the interior space that we create. What we are trying to practice here during the worship portion is to step aside from all the thoughts, all of the the constant din of appointments and worries and stresses, past, future, this, that, everything except what's here now. To step away from all of that like you would step away from the street corners or the marketplace and move into this quiet interior space. Jesus is talking to us on two levels. And we need to understand this is how it works. It's secret. It's set aside. It's apart. It's solitude. And then it's also wordless. He says, you know, you don't need to use a lot of words here like the Gentiles do. You know, God knows what you need before you ask him. And then he rewards in secret in the same way, which means interiorly. The reward is also unseen because it's here in this secret place that all this has taken place. And this idea of reward, see, the way we think of reward is that you do something now and you get paid later. There's a separation in time between the action or, the, or what you have done and the reward that you're going to get from it. But you've got to think this through because for a Jew and for Jesus, everything is happening now. Everything that is is happening now and can't happen any other place. It's always now, always happening right here. And so the reward that we're going to get from God is also going to be right here and right now. Not there then, not delayed in some way. In a very real sense, the prayer itself is the reward. The prayer itself, the sense of connection and communion, the, the, the wind back under your wings in the face of whatever it is that you are facing, is the reward in secret, in that interior space. The inner room and the silence. It's a different way of praying. You know, This is the essence of contemplative prayer. The prayer changes the way that we look at our circumstances without changing the circumstances themselves necessarily, without even asking, just by being, by going into this place. Second principle, when we do ask, we ask with a petition or with the outcome submitted to a higher perspective. I know that sounds a little strange. We are asking for something, but it's submitted to a higher perspective. To God who can see things from a different viewpoint and see things beyond what we think we're asking for. Take a look at Matthew 26. We actually covered this last week, but we're going to look at it from a slightly different angle. Starting in verse 36, this is Jesus right after the Last Supper. Jesus came with them to a place, place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, even as we desperately ask for something, we're still asking with a submission and with the trust to God's will, will 
in quotation marks, understood Aramaically as that different perspective, understood as God's deepest desire, God's deepest purpose, and recognizing that real meaning and purpose, our will, our deepest desire, our deepest purpose, our deepest fulfillment, isn't going to come from outside circumstances. It isn't going to come from outcomes that we achieve, that we are seeking. But it's in matching our will, our purpose, to God's ultimate realities, will, and purpose. Pulling in the same direction as spirit. Pulling in the same direction as life itself. You see what Jesus is doing here? He doesn't want to go through what he knows he's going to be going through the next day. But I'm going to hitch my will, my wagon, back up to yours. I'm going to pull in the same direction, whatever direction that is. Because I'm going to submit to the higher perspective that you have to see further than I can see from my little parochial place here so that I know that I'm still going in the right direction. Easier said than done, right? Remember that story of David in the Old Testament? He's just gone through the the, uh, adultery. He's got Bathsheba. He had Uriah killed. And Nathan comes and lowers the boom on him. And as Nathan is walking out the door, his son with Bathsheba is taken severely ill. And while the boy is ill, and David knows what's probably going to happen, but he covers himself in ashes. He won't eat. He won't bathe. He won't change his clothes. He's despondent, just laying on the ground for as long as the boy is sick. All of his servants and his family members are pleading with him to please come eat. Please come and take care of yourself. And he won't do it. And then he hears the servants whispering in the corner, and he realizes the boy is dead. He confirms with them that the boy is dead. And what does he do? He gets up. He takes a bath. He anoints his hair with oil, and he asks for food. And everybody's amazed and says, why are you doing this? And he's saying, well, you know, as long as the boy was alive, who knows what the father might do? Who knows what God might do? And so I fasted and I prayed. But now that he's dead, you know, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Here is a man who prays in the same way, desperately for what he wants. But as soon as the outcome is known, he gets right back up. This is why he was God's beloved no matter what he did. How crazy he was because he kept coming back into the the pool of light that God's love shone in his life. This was David. This is the kind of prayer that we're talking about here. The second type. And how about the third type? Let's take a look at these... uh, There's five, I think, passages here, just little short ones. Matthew 18, starting at verse 19. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You know, we read a verse like this, and it just drives us batty, right? Okay, what's the formula? What do I got to do? I got to get someone with me and we got to agree. And then we say it in his name. We do this. You know, then we can really be sure that we're going to get what we're asking for. This business of two, this business of two-ness, the two witnesses, this is an illusion. And the people would have understood this too. We don't get it. It was an illusion to their court proceedings. You couldn't prosecute someone unless you had two witnesses. One witness couldn't do it. Two witness was proof of truth in their legal system. Do you see where he's going with this? He's using another metaphor here. Where two or three are gathered in my name, 
connected, seeing truth in the same way, there is the answered prayer. Because two, seeing truth in the same way, gathered in my name, are pulling in the same direction as Father to begin with. John 14, starting at verse 12, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, now, so in my name keeps coming up over and over again, but we're starting to get the definition. Look what that verse says. Whoever believes in me and also does the works that I do, this is a person who is living and working in my name, praying in my name. This is reading between the not even between the lines, but reading carefully to see how phrases that we don't understand are also defined. John 15, verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So now we got the idea of abiding. You know, what is abiding? Abiding is, is accepting or acting in accordance with something. That's what abiding literally means. You know, it also means to live in a space and so on and so forth. So abiding, same thing as whoever believes in me and does my works, acts in accordance with my works. And the words are abiding in him. Deuteronomy talks about the law being written on the people's hearts. Jesus is saying, when my words are written on your heart, when they are your deepest desire, your own deepest purpose, when this just flows out of you as easily as rolling out of bed in the morning, then your prayers are answered. Anything that you ask in that state, from that position, is sort of the definition of answered prayer, isn't it? John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask in my Father, my, my, ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. So now there's the idea of bearing fruit that there's going to be a personal transformation that will come as the result of this type of prayer, of living, abiding, believing, doing the works, having the words abiding in you, in your heart. This transformation is the fruit that he's talking about. And that fruit will persist. That fruit will abide in your life. We're piling on the metaphors here. John 16, verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. In what day? The day of his crucifixion. The day when they can't access him physically anymore. You will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What's he talking about here? They've not asked in his name? You know, even up to the crucifixions, his closest friends and disciples didn't get what he was about. They were still fighting him. They were still jockeying for seats on his left and right hand when his military kingdom came into power. They didn't understand. He said, you have not asked in my name. You have not asked. What is this my name business anyway? The word for name in Hebrew in Aramaic is Shem. You know what Shem really means? It means name, of course. It's the closest we can come to our idea of name. But what it really means is the inner essence of something. It's the character of something. It's the reputation of something. The Jews understood it as the outer appearance of something that revealed or pointed to the inner essence. 
So when they named their children persons, places, or things, it was always with that in mind. The name revealed the inner essence of the person or the place or the thing. To pray in Jesus' name is not to attach syllables to the end of our prayer and superstitiously think somehow if I get just the incantation right that the prayer is going to be delivered to me the way I want it to be delivered. The outcome is going to be delivered. But to abide, to act in accordance with, to believe and to do the works of, to have the words so written on our hearts that we have become identified with Jesus. What did Jesus talk about his own identity? How did he express it? He said, I and the Father are one. This prayer is about identity. When we are identified with Father, when we can say with Jesus that I and the Father are one in the sense that everything that I know about the Father and what he values, I value as well so deeply that I would never do anything outside of those values. In essence, then, any prayer I pray is going to be exactly the prayer that the Father is praying. And that is always answered prayer. These are the little gems that are here in the Gospels, here for us to be able to understand how we can approach prayer in a way that takes the sting out of the disappointment, takes the devastation out of the trauma, allows us to keep breathing. How did I answer my friend when she sent me that? Here's what I said back to her. How do we pray? As a contemplative prayer is mostly wordless, silent connection in which we step away from the constant stream of thought that dominates every waking moment, and I guess every dreaming moment as well. If prayer is really a stepping away from words and thoughts and therefore anything we can conceive of, including outcomes, then prayer isn't primarily about asking for changes in circumstances. It's about experiencing the unseen aspects of life. And with that experience and connection to the unseen world, the seen world and all its difficult circumstances becomes more bearable. That's the shorthand. But there's so much to discuss about this, and I'd never want to in any way minimize or trivialize what you're going through or how much you're looking for healing. In actuality, we do both at the same time. We ask for outcomes we want, and need, and we connect with God's presence that helps us hold more lightly to those outcomes and allows us to enjoy the moments in between, even though. Whenever people ask me to pray for them for specific outcomes, I always do, wholeheartedly. But I also include that whatever the outcome, please allow us to feel presence every step of the way so that we know we're not alone and can see purpose and meaning in whatever may come. It's all we can do, really. I know this probably sounds weak in the midst of what you're going through, but though it's much easier said than done, I still believe it's true, whether I can do it or not. And to the extent I can, the hard stretches have been easier to bear. But I also haven't faced what you're facing. There are a lot of details, yeah, buts, and what ifs we could talk about if you would like. Just let me know. Hard to talk about such huge issues in a short form without sounding like a fortune cookie platitude. And and that's worse than unhelpful. Just know that we are with you, dear, and we're here to help in any way we can. 
You know, it's a tightrope trying to answer a question like this that's coming from such a place of angst and trauma in life that can't be answered. You know, what she's going through doesn't have an answer. But what it does have is a way through. And that's what I was trying to get across to her. There's no answer, just like there was no answer to Job for all the things that he encountered. But there was a way through. There was a way of moving toward a personal answer that will become your own conviction, just like I'm trying to give you my convictions now. But how did Pat answer? And this is where I want to leave you. I got a series of emails or texts from Pat all the way back at the uh, on New Year's Eve. Pat texted, "We'll keep trying to keep you posted." She's still sleeping mostly, believing for God's grace. He told Paul it's sufficient for thorn pulling. I love that. For you guys too, of course. So what is he saying? He's saying God's grace is greater than the circumstances. It's greater than the pain. That it is possible to trust through, even as you pray for the outcome. Believing for God's grace. And then New Year's Day, he writes, gave her her last breathing treatment at 10 and good night. Seemed to sleep well, have begun praying for God to give us a sign of his intention, whether to take or raise her up, something to cooperate with. I just love that. I love the way he put that. Let me read it again. Have begun praying for God to give us a sign of his intention, whether to take or raise her up, something to cooperate with. He's looking for God's direction over and above his own desired outcome. He's looking to cooperate. He's looking for some way to be able to pull in the same direction that God's pulling. And he doesn't know what that is. So it's really hard for him to do it. But that's what he's trying to do, to pull in the same direction, whatever direction that is. As long as he's pulling in the same direction as God, he knows he's right in the center of everything. And then on the 8th of January... I had sent a, pe- a picture that you probably saw up there of Pat and Shirley and Al Mooney, the guy with the purple beard. <laughs> I sent that. I just found it in my phone and I sent it to him and I wanted it to, uh, to just to see. Look, look what he said about that. He goes, oh boy, <laughs> such peaceful, happy, meaningful times. I can sit and just look at it for hours. Lovely memories floating through my mind. Thank God for every minute. It's not done yet. I'm sure God is up to something. We just have to hold on. He's staying present, right? He's staying grateful. He's staying staying aware of the good things, even in the midst of all that is going on and happening. And he's enthused about something good that's going to happen. God is up to something. Just have to hold on. And then the day after she died, the 12th, yesterday, I am missing her terribly, but not mourning. God bless you guys, Pat. He's missing her terribly, but he's not mourning. That sense that she's all right, that sense that she is preceding him into the place that he will be going is taking the sting out of what he's doing. He can miss her without mourning her. He can see this connection even in the midst of the pain, the disappointment, even the devastation. Now, I haven't been diagnosed with cancer, and I haven't lost my wife But I say that I believe in these principles, these principles of prayer. I say I believe. 
And they've been tested in me, but in smaller ways. And I don't know if they were put to such severe test as Pat's going through, as my friend is going through. I don't know how I would do. I can't know that until I'm there. I can keep practicing what I am preaching here. I can keep putting it to the tests that are presented to me. But I won't know unless I get there. Some of you have already been there. Some of you have gone through all of these kinds of things. So all we can do, and what I'm learning now so much with all of the things that have been happening to us over these years of this community, is all I can do is my best to follow Jesus' guide, to follow his example, to follow Pat's example, to follow the examples of anyone here in this community that shows me a new way of doing something, that connects dots for me that I hadn't connected for myself, and try to follow that trail all the way home. I'm going to miss Shirley. But I'm going to be with Pat and not mourn for her. Maybe just have a pout for myself. How about that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these people that you put in our lives. Oh my gosh. These beautiful people, these angels among us. Help us to be more aware of what we've got before it's gone. Help us to see the gifts that we've been given and to enjoy them while they're still here and not be looking after when they're not here anymore. Help us to be on top of life, living it right in real time as it's unfolding and seeing it for what it is, seeing it for the the amazing gifts that you're giving us every moment that brings us back, locks us in to right here and right now. That's how I want to live, Father. Help me to do that more and more. Help me to step beyond the fears that I have. And I pray that for every single one of us. But thank you for the example that Shirley has given us. Thank you for the example that Pat's giving us right now. Thank you for my friend who is amazing in the way that she's handling what she's going through. Help them to bolster my strength in the things that I'm going through. And thank you for the gift of your spirit every day, flowing through our lives, being the glue that holds everything together if we're only aware. And thank you for loving us and never letting us forget that we can only love it all because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let's all stand.